coming up on Life is a Festival. Is one piece of advice that might provide ease to someone listening is basically to say, hey, that person who's telling you like that this is the structure and this is what works and this is what will get you to the creativity. If that's not working for you, that is not some fault of you. It probably is just not what's happening right now. And that's okay. Because I have certainly felt over and over again as people have described, well, have you tried this template and this sort of thing? The war of art, artist way, or just, you know, have you tried being out in nature and doing it? Have you tried meditating before writing? Whatever other people's thing is, if it's not working for me, then I'm like, man, am I doing something wrong? Am I missing it? Have I lost it? Is creativity never going to visit me again? All those thoughts come in. And I think one thing I could say that would be helpful is just because their version of structure is not working for you does not mean that you are broken or wrong. It very well may mean that thing is not a fit for you and you have every right to let it go. Hello, my fellow travelers. Welcome to Life is a Festival. Today on the show, we are talking about one of my all-time favorite subjects in all of the world, the relationship we share with the creative muse, how to bring creativity into your life, how to romance the muse, as the title implies. And perhaps you may learn a thing or two about getting unstuck creatively, or at the very least, you are about to hear some exceptional poetry. My guest today is Max Stossel, who is an award-winning poet. In fact, he was named by Forbes as one of the best storytellers of the year. And his one-man show, Words That Move, is now available. So the show opens in a really interesting way. I, I like to run the mic as we kind of banter and get to know each other. Usually I don't put it in the podcast. It's just sort of how we get comfy with each other. And then there's the moment where I say, welcome to Life is a Festival, and then we're off on our subjects. But sometimes that opening banter ends up getting really interesting. So on today's show, we've got about 17 minutes of Max and I talking about vulnerability, and it gets a little vulnerable. Really excited it was recorded because it's it's such a wonderful way of expressing an authentic meeting between two people who share many mutual friends and have not met before where there might be a little crunchiness. Anyway, that's the first 17 minutes. And then we get into the creative process and this relationship with the muse. We talk about how to use and break structure. We talk about how to cultivate the muse in your life. Max reads a poem for the muse as lover. Max talks about how you are your art's first customer. We talk about getting unstuck with things like parallel creative ventures and accountability. Of course, it's the time, so we talk a bit about AI and creation. And we end with this splendid poem from Max called The Death of a Former Self. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. So as I said, Max is an award-winning poet. He's also a filmmaker, a speaker, and he was named by Forbes as one of the best storytellers of the year. He also is the youth and education advisor for the Center for Humane Technology. So when he is not writing poetry and sharing it with the world, he is dedicated to realigning technology with humanity's best interests, particularly by working with youth and going to schools. Finally, he has this amazing one-man show, which by the way, I've tried to write a one-man show. That shit is hard. One-man show, which is called Words That Move. So links to everything in the show notes. Really an honor to meet Max in this way and have such an authentic 
conversation with him. And now I bring you Max Stossel. You get final cut on the content. You can have anything you want removed from this conversation prior to its publication. Cool. Um, conversation publication. I'm starting to do something. It's so interesting hearing you speak that way and then wanting so bad to do it too. Because mm. the da 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 And then when you hit the word on the thing and then it's that and then the femininity and the that's and the way that the word comes out in that exact moment, I crave it. I desire it. And there's some part of my brain that when I'm doing certain things like writing music, it'll happen, or when I'm typing, or sometimes in a podcast, but that particular like pen, pentameter, what is it? Um, I think pentameter it, is a very specific yeah, one. But or the, your, your rhyme meter. scheme, your meter, yeah, meter exactly. Yeah, pentameter would be like five. It eludes me. But I am curious what is in your way of just talking in any kind of way that you want to talk. I think you can just simply do it if you wanted to do it. I don't think there's anything stopping you. It's the rhymes. The rhymes are hard. Like if I were to need everything to rhyme, it'd be much harder. But I yeah. think letting go of that is helpful. And then rhymes can be delightful surprises. <laughs> and I really like the way that you do that specific thing. The rhyme. No, the the f- coming in and out of rhyming. Ah. Yeah, it's kind of like stand up, kind of storytelling, and then all of a sudden it's poetry. And I really like it. Thanks, I really man. Like yeah, it. yeah, I like that aspect too. I like to like do a little kind of banter before I welcome you to the show. And then sometimes if the on-ramp ends up being splendid, I'll keep it in the recording. But it takes a little while to drop in the pocket on a podcast. It takes a little while to get comfy, which is why I like talk to you before we start. I just like to like settle in. Because my desire is that you are excruciatingly vulnerable at some point during this conversation. Excruciatingly excruciating, vulnerable. Excruciatingly vulnerable. Excruciating is implying like there's some pain to that vulnerability. Well, yeah. a lot of pain to that vulnerability. Yeah, well, that there's a, yeah, excruciating is a bit hyperbolic, but there's an uncomfortable realness to where you go. Mm-hmm. My desire as a podcaster is to support you in going there should you so wish. Mm-hmm. Because if you do... Then we get to the threshold of you saying things that you haven't said before. And to me, that's the best radio. Fair enough. Because we're kind of co-creating future selves Hmm. in real time. So I get nervous about trying to do that. So I have to like settle. This is me settling. Well, that feels appropriate to be nervous about trying to push somebody to that place. Not push. I wouldn't say push. That seems a little non-consensual. Fair enough. And like shared vulnerability. I would make a bid. For that. I'd make a vulnerable bid. It's part of why I told you about my sexuality before we started. Interesting. Because I'm being disclosing. Even though I've just met you, I'm being disclosing in a way that I hope will make you feel safer and more comfortable having Mm -hmm. a conversation with me where you're pushing your own edges. Your disclosing of that brings awareness to me of, oh, you want something from me. Interesting. And I'm like, oh, okay. I did not have that expectation or understanding before. And that's, okay, interesting. You want that thing from me. Do I want to go there or not? And yeah, it brings up a a distrust of, oh, are you sharing things with an intention? You're not Mm. sharing them because you want to share them. You're sharing them trying to get me somewhere. Mm. And that brings a guard up for me. Oh, interesting. So it has the opposite effect of what I've described. Well, sharing it, I think sharing it did have an opening effect. And you're being honest about your intentions, which also then, you know, levels it as, oh, you're telling me what's happening, which is honesty. But yeah, but hearing, oh, you were sharing that 
with an intention feels mm. very different than you're sharing it. Interesting. Yeah, okay. So I I don't feel as cynically strategic in the sense of I'm sharing this so that then you'll give it to me. To me, it's more a desire for shared vulnerability over time, mm. where if I offer to you, then you may offer to me, and then I may offer to you, and you may offer to me. And so to me, that feels like building trust together versus tricking you into trusting me, which is what it sounds like. Maybe it feels like on your end if I tell you that there's the desire it's to interesting get to a certain place. We're post-rationalizing now. And yeah, I wonder if it would have felt different if you had started that story saying, hey, I want to tell you this thing. And part of the reason I want to tell you is that I hope to have this sort of shared vulnerability with you, if that would have felt different for me. Mm. And I can say now that I think it would have, and I don't actually know that that's true or not. How do you feel in this moment? I feel attention in my chest. I feel calmness in my shoulders. Peace in my stomach. Anxiety in my throat. And generally present. How about you? I feel, I also feel tension in my chest. Mm. And I feel curiosity and an interest in ameliorating any distrust that you might have of me. Mm. Not simply for the podcast, but in a like <laughs> interpersonal thing. <laughs> sure. But I'm also excited about the honesty and the vulnerability and your ability to share with me. <laughs> See, I, if I hear myself do something that feels like it's meter, then I'm like, ah, oh, I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> your ability to share with me how that, the impact that had on you, because mm. when I'm doing what I'm doing, any f like really honest feedback like that is extremely important and helpful to me mm. because A, it helps me support you in where I, what you have told me you wish to go and B, it helps me understand how my expression might impact others in mm. the future. I've had the same conversation with another person. I actually don't usually talk about it this way and I've had the same conversation with another person that went the opposite way that it feels like it went in this moment. And mm. I might've been relying on that experience mm. and the way in which I find you similar to him as part of the way that I communicated it with you. Cool. Also, you're in no way wrong for, and I think you know this, for how you've done it or anything you've done. I'm just sort of trying to reflect back what my experience of it was. And it will be tough to fully disarm my mistrust. We have a lot of mutual friends I really love a lot and have deep trust with. And we also come from similar worlds and some worlds in which I have a lot of distrust as I see a lot of beautiful vulnerability being used for an end goal. And yeah, I have defenses up to that and we're meeting for the first time. And so that is something that with the set of mutual friends that we have is present for me and I would imagine would take time to, to really unwind and to see you at a depth where I would yeah, be able to more like would it even be where I would be able to better choose how much guard to let down, which makes me sad as I say it out loud and also is something that, yeah, that I've learned is a worthwhile check-in. This is perfect. The thing that I have done that is most analogous to what you do mm -hmm. is a 10-minute stand-up piece about performative vulnerability. Really? Yes. Okay, about, I would love to watch that. And about using <laughs> vulnerability to achieve goals. I would love to Specifically. Watch that. Huh? When I was 17, I was sent to a therapeutic boarding school. Do you know what this is? A no. therapeutic boarding school? Troubled teen industry? Okay. Do you know if this crossed your path at all? Three 
sessions of three-hour group therapy every week mm. in a very like lockdown structured environment where basically if you cry, you get privileges <laughs> during very okay. formative years. Okay. So the thing that you're highlighting that you feel discouraged by within our shared community, which is, I wouldn't even say vulnerability, I'd say performative openness because yeah. it's not vulnerability unless you have something to lose. If you're being transparent for a goal and you're curating your transparency, mm. then that's not vulnerability, right? Mm. So it's not even vulnerability, but it seems like vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I was trained to do that. Mm. So I'm like, actually the very thing that makes you uncomfortable, you're I am extremely <laughs> skilled at it. Cool. Yeah. So then it makes sense for me to have some flag. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I am, I feel, I really respect you telling me because mm. that puts us on an, on a exciting footing. Mm. And it actually paradoxically gets where I wanted to be. Yeah, I think that's fair. Which is interesting yeah. because you, I can feel a reluctance to being like forced to a certain place mm. or pulled to a certain place mm -hmm. or dare I say tricked into getting to a certain place. And in your resistance to that, you have actually been vulnerable with me. Mm -hmm. And it's quite vulnerable to sit with someone that you've never met to be on their show and to say, I was feeling open and now I feel closed because mm. of your choices and what you've shared with me. Mm. That to me is a vulnerable thing to say and do. Yeah. And it, we are, like right now, we're on a line of, it's also, I'm very aware of the camera, I'm very aware of the microphone. The depths I'm describing, they feel like, I very much trust myself to communicate with you about this in this moment. I trust myself to navigate these waters with you, to stand in my own self and boundaries and express what feels right for me and to hold my own, yeah, my own sense of what, where I want to be. As I think about how the people who I'd have distrust with, as I think about how eager some of those people are to grab a snippet and use it as evidence for X, Y, look why Max is a monster. Look why this, look how old, see, the thing he was pointing at in me is not true at all. See, look, it's, I feel aware of that in the sense of recording. And so my hesitance to be pulled is heightened by the microphone in that sense. And this is, this is a vulnerable topic for me. So I agree. We've reached, I hope, something that you have wanted to, wanted from the show. Does it make you feel at ease, me telling you that you get final cut on everything and that nothing would be released in the world without your express approval, where you can review, you can request any edit you wish. You can even say you don't want the show published at all and we won't publish it. Does that put you at ease? That brings, it brings calmness to my throat. And also, I really doubt that I would ever actually speak, hey, I really don't want you to use that part. Or that in some ways would feel like crafting the narrative in a way that wouldn't quite feel honest. And so I doubt that I would actually leverage that choice. And I appreciate the choice. And I recognize how that choice is more conducive to having genuine vulnerability here with you in this moment. The choice is not typically used in my show. One of my favorite episodes that I've ever done was about suicide mm -hmm. with the partner of someone who had killed themselves. And it was an extraordinary show and she pulled it, which that was really hard. But I find that I am interested in shared vulnerability in part because of my relationship to it. I want the real. I like relentlessly want the real. And it's so interesting to me that you, the way you shared me wanting the real from you is in a sense a manipulation of you. Mm. 
if I am giving you my real and my desire is for you to give me your real, then actually that's a feeling of being manipulated. Mm. And what does that bring up for you? Shame. Mm. Embodied experience, it's shame and a desire to, two conflicting desires, a desire to smooth it over and make you like me. Be like, no, but here's the thing. But he, listen, here's the thing. And then a desire to cleave to authenticity mm. and pass through that and have the deeper understanding of myself and you and our potential blossoming relationship that lives on the other side of that. And that's really interesting to me. And that to me is actually the path of real vulnerability, which is in a sense, you called me out. Sure. You called me in, called me out. Called, like, called, me, in, called, me, called me in is call, nice. Called me in, you called me yeah. in. And I like that you did it. And I'm uncomfortable sure. and I'm physically uncomfortable, mm. which I'm usually not when I'm sitting in this chair. <laughs> well, thanks for sticking in with me. And one thing that I think is so interesting, and I love that you named both things that are present, is I have a story that were you to feed the first story of the shame and no like me, I think that would feed more distrust in me. I would sense it and I would pull away further. And I'm very interested in the second thing you mentioned of like, the, oh, okay, that's there, that happened, and what does it look like to, to move through this into genuine seeing and vulnerability? And I think even the awareness of those two is beautiful and helpful. And I am very often in calling people in, met with this, no, well, no, here's why you don't understand me, and no, you're gonna like me for this thing, which is, I'm like, Okay, kind of makes me lean out. And, but what you've just shared does make me lean in. And I can get obsessed with what are we sharing, not because of any sort of outcome, not because we're desiring anything from anyone, but just here's what's real for me. Here's what I want to express right now. I love that place. Like I love that so much. I tend to encourage all sorts of friends, fellow creatives, like people that I encounter into just like, ah, like what's there for you right now? And I also tend to show up often with, Many, most I'd say people in my life with little to zero judgment at all to be a safe space. For, oh, cool. That's what's happening for you. Cool. Wonderful. We could play with that. And so I'm just, I can get very obsessed with like, oh, what is being shared? Not because we want anything from each other, but just because that's what wants to be shared. That place excites me so much. And I love being in that place. And I find I have the deepest relationships, friendships, connections with people who relate to me in that space. I love this. It's such a fun paradox in that your first thing that you said is, oh, you want something. So you're making strategic choices to get the thing that you want. The thing that I want is what you just described. Mm. And I want that because I think that is a worthy offering to the people listening to this show. Mm. And because that's more interesting to me. Mm. So I want that. Mm. But the way that you kind of exposed the strategic aspect of it and how that closes you gives me, yeah, it's just a lot to metabolize around how I do this. Because mm. I did a podcast with someone where I basically described that's what I did. And this was a, a similar, like similar in the sense of creative, someone who's like uh, it's a musician and someone who's very much in the space of like finding that vein to create from. And their response was like, okay, let's go deeper, let's go deeper, let's go deeper, let's do it. I want to do the thing that you want to do. Cool. And once that happened, it kind of was something I, I like put in my pocket. And I was like, okay, this will now happen in this way again with others. And it's so interesting to have it be like adjusted and be invited to attune to this adjustment. 
It's very interesting. And that I love that you brought that up too, because to me that is so often like where it happens. I think we as humans in general, and especially in a lot of our shared communities, there is such an urge for so many people to templatize a thing. Mm. The thing happens, this is how we got to that thing. And now there's this thing, by the way, I can sell you this thing for this. Like it so quickly jumps from spectacular beauty to here's how I got to the spectacular beauty last time. And I'm going to make uh, the assumption that I can use the way that I got to the spectacular beauty last time, again this time, and also all sorts of complicated stuff on and make money off of it or gain status off of it, whatever it might mean, templatize the thing. And what I love about presence and that what wants to be shared right now is it invites us to be aware of past experience, but not tied to it. And to allow, oh, what wants to happen right now? And I love that. I love the constant check back in to right now. And so that thing you want, I also want it, which is great because we both want that. And we're here together in an environment where that can happen. So beautiful. We're here. And I love that it happened as it did and allowed us to talk through this thing. In honor of all that wants to occur in our next however many minutes together, with a reverence to that as our highest aim, mm. Max, welcome to Life is a Festival. Wow. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. That was definitely the most interesting podcast intro that I've ever had. <laughs> Good. How many podcasts have you done, would you say? Probably around 50. 50 podcasts. Yeah. What was a moment in a podcast that you did that you felt was analogous to the goal that you just described, that you felt a real sense of yummy presence, discovery of self and other, and shared reality between the two of you, or perhaps more, if there were more involved. I just was on one that's called Man Uncivilized with Traver, I don't know how to say his last name, like Boehm, I think, Traver is his name. And yeah, it just really felt like we clicked in to not performing and not saying the routine things that there are like, People ask me a question, I've answered it so many times, I end up saying similar things. And it felt like we were transcending that and just speaking about the issues themselves and that felt really good. I don't know that I have a specific moment with that podcast. Okay, but that, that's a nice orientation. So much of what I do on the show is about wanting to guide you to a certain place. Which is in some ways your job as a podcaster. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. I feel that is my job. Cool. And I hope that I do it well. But the cleaving to authenticity is, to me, the most, it, absolutely the most interesting thing. Mm. And so kind of breaking the fourth wall, in a sense, or being meta in talking about the process itself is quite interesting to me. But what I was doing in that moment as a technique, not as a template and not as something that I have in my bag of tricks, but as something that's just in my mind is if you've done a lot of podcasts, I'm interested in knowing the ones that worked mm. because we're paving the road as we drive on it. And so I am aware of, oh, you had a felt sense in that moment. And by remembering that felt sense, that brings some of that felt sense in the, in the room with us. Mm, cool. And so it brings some of the experience that you had that worked well for you in a, in a, in a felt sense into this moment. Yeah, I can try to embody the felt sense of that feeling. Going to the story of remembering it takes me up here and trying to drop down into, oh yeah, like I had felt to really just, ah, oh, to be what's here. Feels more embodied. 
it is interesting for me to think about as a podcaster, there is a natural leading. And I guess the alternative would be just really your checking in of what are you, I guess, both curious about and or want to say to break the format of Max's here entirely. It could just be a lot that is present for you. But it would be a process of just checking in of what am I really curious about right now and what do I really want to say right now without needing to get anywhere, which I'm super open to. And also I'm not opposed to if you have a format or structure or a way you like to do this, I'm happy to play inside of that too. Well, I want to play with the structure. And I think that you're a wonderful guest to play with the structure with, particularly because of the specific technology of poetry Mm. as a way of communicating information. Because it's funny, you say, you know, the idea of a template. A meter is a kind of template. A rhyme scheme is a kind of template. You oscillate majestically between the two in a way that sometimes the humor of your work is actually about the stepping in and out of the poetry. Mm. So I've been aware of you for a while, Mm. and I can't remember the first thing of yours that I saw, but I've been aware of you as the poet in the sort of broader Mm. Burning Man milieu of which we both sort of swim. And we're talking about kind of format and template. And I'm interested in how we use structure to be authentic and then we break structure to be authentic. And I think that you, I'm not sure how much of you doing that Mm. is particularly strategically devised and thought out or how much of it is a sort of natural flow of the way that you play with words. Mm. But to me, in watching your work, the way you step into meter and out of meter seems extremely intentional and works really well as a way of working the audience. Mm. Do you have that experience whilst doing it? My experience while writing it and while doing it is also especially initially... I was trying to guide the audience somewhere. Like with the whole, the style was, oh my God, I found something. It's beautiful and I want you to have it. And so I'm going to do this thing that helps, I think it really get in you in this beautiful way. And in some ways you could say the whole poems were designed to do that or the show is like how I'm delivering them. And as I think about the full show, I was very conscious of, I want there to be enough laughter throughout so that you're not checking out of, oh, this is like too much coming at me. Like I want, I want your real focused attention. And I have been very thoughtful about how, or feeling into, am I losing you? Like, are you not here with me anymore? And if so, then maybe I want to change something about the poem or it's gone on too long or it needs to go in a different place or we need a joke to get in there faster. I wish I was better at writing the jokes because the jokes are so powerful. But that, I'm very aware of attention, of are you with me? And is the audience with me? And I think there is intentional design that way. As you were just sharing that, of the stepping in and out as humor, yeah, like I'm drawn to one moment in the poem about my barber, where it's like we're just like in this deep, ethereal place. And then it's just like, it's a lot to take in for a haircut, just like kind of in and out of that. And often laughter, if something is funny, and I find it funny and meaningful. I want to say it. Like, I want to do it. I just love that. And there is something naturally funny sometimes about breaking frame, about being in a really deep place and then going to a silly one. And so I just enjoy that organically. But when, what's interesting is when the poems are coming through themselves, you know, I'm, it's not strategy. It's not, I'm going to do this and then this. 
It's, oh my God, look what's happening. A poem is happening. Cool, and that, oh, and then it goes to that. And then it goes to that. Well, amazing. Look, a poem. And then afterwards, in performing it, feeling, hey, am I losing people in the editing process? There might be more of that, like, tweaking and making sure that it's landing. But the creation itself is just like, wow, cool. <laughs> Look what's going on. And I love that. It's, it's, it's like a bit of a variation on the right drunk edit sober yeah. kind of energy where it's like you're channeling the muse. Yeah. And then you're refining your cathartic relationship to your audience. So it has a bit of like, it, it feels Greek to me. Yeah, and I don't, I don't edit too much. I have to be damn confident that my sober, big air quote sober, self really has a better feed on what wants to come through. I have to be like really feel a sense of trust in my body and after I've edited it, there has to be clarity in my body for me to stick with it. Oftentimes I'll delete a sentence and then something will like be in my throat and I'll be like, oh, okay, I'll put it back in, it'll go away. Then I'll get frustrated. I'll be like, I don't want that line in there. And then I'll delete it and the thing will come back. And I'll be like, all right, I guess it stays in. I trust that wisdom more than I trust my brain. Can you recall the first time in your life that you felt that you were channeling art? That you had opened the vessel, you'd opened yourself up, and that art was coming through, not getting stuck, and you had an embodied experience that this art is coming through and it is art and I love it. Yes, it was after hearing a poet perform named Inq, who you probably know. I heard him perform, and then on the way home, my body was just like buzzing, which had not happened before. How old are you? I'm 22, and I just started writing on my phone notepad on the way home, just like trying to figure it out, which is also interesting. I'm not sure what took me to my phone notepad, because I had never done that before either, but something in me knew. And I started writing, and the first two lines rhymed, and I was like, oh, that's fun. And then I kind of kept going and it was coming out. And that was like a, I would say, oh, it's fun. And like, I'm doing this and it's happening. Oh, this is cool. I can do this. There was a lot of I in that. And then I would say like a poem or two later, one where I, the first one that opens the show where I smack my head and I'm kind of disoriented. At the, at the turnstiles? Yeah, on the turnstiles of the subway. And then that's just coming through and I'm like, oh, that's so fun. And then with Subway Love, which is the last poem in the special, it just feeling like, just the delight of, wow, and the next line, and that goes so well. Oh, and then that one, look at these happening, just catching them. And that was spectacular. And I very much want to be able to templatize that for myself. I want to be able to know how to get to that place and do that more often. I would love to know how to do that. And I, don't, I really don't believe it works that way. I don't believe I'm in charge of when that happens. So you can't templatize it. You are not in charge of when it happens. But do you create certain optimal conditions for it? I.e., do you work in a certain space? Do you work at a certain time of day? Are there things that you optimize that, so there's more likely lightning for you to ride? I've tried. I've tried a bunch of different things. There are some like conversations with certain people that spark kind of more flow. You know, Taking care of myself is always helpful. I have not yet. It's also a little bit like to me what we're talking. I assume that some of what we talked about before will be in the podcast. But you describing how you had approached this conversation with your friend and that worked out really well, and it being different here with me and having my having a different reaction. Often it feels when I'm trying to recreate what happened last time, like I'm clinging to the last, yeah, to the last shred of lightning or hope, but not actually being here now and. 
it's tough to know how to spend my time with writing because of this. So I would like to shift this in my life. I'm also very skeptical of anyone who's telling me, well, have you tried this? I'm like, are you just attached to being in control or do you actually have something that is going to be helpful here? At a risk of offering something that could be helpful <laughs> sure. to either Dear yourself God. or who I am tracking more than you is our listeners. Okay. So, so I'm also thinking about what might be helpful for them, which mm-hmm. is part of the inception of many of my questions are thinking about you know, the young artist listening mm. who's like, ah, I feel so close to something. I'm like, well, Max will help you. Mm. Um, at a risk of offering something helpful, have you read the book, The War of Art? Yes. Did you find that book helpful? I love that book and I've read it twice and I love the way it talks about resistance and it feels fueling to me. The practice of showing up to work, saying my artist prayer, sitting down every day and trying does not, has not created this thing for me. And what I felt called to share as you were going into that and thinking about the listener is one piece of advice I think that I could, that might provide ease to someone listening is basically to say, hey, that person who's telling you like that this is the structure and this is what works and this is what will get you to the creativity. If that's not working for you, that is not some fault of you. Like you are not broken or not tapped in or not doing it right. You know, maybe you're not, but like you're prob- it probably is just not what's happening right now. And that's okay. Because I have certainly felt over and over again as people have described, well, have you tried this template and this sort of thing? The war of art, artist way, or just, you know, have you tried being out in nature and doing it? Have you tried meditating before writing? Like whatever other people's thing is, if it's not working for me, then I'm like, man, am I doing something wrong? Am I missing it? Have I lost it? Is creativity never going to visit me again? All those thoughts come in. And I think one thing I could say that would be helpful is just because their version of structure is not working for you does not mean that you are broken or wrong. It very well may mean that thing is not a fit for you and you have every right to let it go. I like the permissiveness around letting it go. May I share with you, would you like me to share with you? Is it interesting to you to know what mine is? Sure. So mine, my courting of the muse is erotic Mm. in nature. I think of the muse as a lover and I think of the muse as someone whose attention I need to, I need to catch her attention. I need to be interesting to her so that she wants to flirt with me. Mm -hmm. And then when she does flirt with me, then it's a flirtation. Mm -hmm. So to your point, it can't be templatized because you can't templatize flirting, Mm -hmm. right? But For me, when the muse visits me, which I'm very grateful, I'm writing a book at the moment and I'm in a super like relationship with the muse in it. Sometimes she's not around for sure, but there are times when she is around and I, like you with your poetry, am just gobsmacked that something is coming out of me. Mm -hmm. That I'm like, this is actually something that I I like this. And I think about it as a lovership and Mm -hmm. I think about it as eros, as like erotic energy, Mm -hmm. as the creative spark of a kind of erotic energy where I'm grateful, but I also tease a little bit and I also pull a little bit away and then I kind of lean in because if I'm obsequious with the muse, she will tire of me according to my... Mm -hmm mytho poetry. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. To me, it's actually poetic. It's a poetic game. I really like the mytho poetic frame. I bring a lot of like Greek mythology into my writing and into my thinking about writing. And it's this flirtation and it's this sort of erotic dance. And to me, that doesn't reliably give me the thing, but more reliably than any other way of thinking about it. I'm curious what some examples of drawing her to you are. And yeah, I also I'm drawn, I'm interested in, I'm like, oh, the hard to get type or the game back and forth where you pull away. 
puts like is applying a lot of human dynamics and psychology to that, which sparks my brain to be like, oh, is, that's interesting that you think it's operating in a similar way to the way human relations or dynamics operate. I wouldn't expect the muse to bother herself with such things as the, oh, you're pulling away in the game and I'm coming closer to you that way. But it's interesting that that you say she might. Well, pulling away, is, pulling away sounds a bit like playing a game, but I think of it more of the dance of leaning out and leaning in. Mm-hmm. I don't think of it as like I'm like trying to trick her into mm-hmm. leaning in. Is, I hear hard to get is what I'm hearing. Is that not what you're... Okay, no, not hard to get. Okay. Attending to when I've leaned in too much huh. and leaning out huh. as a way of creating space. I feel how that's different. You couldn't trick the muse. Right. Because, <laughs> like, how? And I, and I think for me, it's a way of tricking myself. It's a way of playing with my own psychology. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's an anthropomorphication of a completely effervescent thing, this idea of creative flow. Mm-hmm. If you could study it scientifically, that's not what you would determine. But it's a way of working with my own self and keeping my own self playful. What is creative flow for you? Is it a, a brain state? Is it something like spiritual, religious? It definitely feels spiritual. It's confusing to even know where to orient to answer the question. It's like, I want to be like, what in you wants to know or define it? Huh, like you, wanna, you want words for it? Okay, yes. interesting. Yes, Max, I would like you to put <laughs> you everything words in words. To that? Huh. Yeah. Um, well, 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 let's pause for a second because okay. what we've been doing all along and what I am really appreciating about you is you're, pausing and checking. Mm-hmm. So your question is, why am I asking the question? And I will tell you, I mean, broadly. My question is, what in you wants to know? So what in me wants to know what the magic is, is part of me wanting to return to your poetry. Okay. And there's a, there's, there are a number of ways I could have done that because there's, been, there's a ton of different things I want to ask you. I'm going to pull up a poem that is very related to some things that you were saying. Great. So perf- uh, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> I want a poem related to the things that I'm saying. That feels really nice. I'd like to wake up inspired. Good morning, love. You are so tired. How'd you sleep? You know, I miss you while you sleep. I'd kiss her gently on the cheek and smile as she starts to speak. Sometimes she sleeps for what seems like an eternity. And this fear burns in me that she won't ever wake. Selfishly, I'm scared I won't get to be with her anymore. In that way, I'm using her. She is not only my love, but my livelihood. And I really should be grateful that she's even stood by me for this long. But I find myself craving the next song, loving her all wrong. I don't treat her with respect. I just expect that she'll wake for me, wait for me and drop in on me conveniently. And I spend a lot of time thinking about how to draw her to me, but I guess honestly I haven't treated her romantically, haven't made breakfast for her while she sleeps. I also find she comes around when I take care of me. And that way she's the best lover I could ever possibly ask for. Doing what's best for me is what's best for her. And she doesn't need me to abstain from other women. In fact, she loves them and through me is with them. And she needs all that she deserves too. The truth is, she's so much bigger than me. She lies with everybody, honestly, and unfortunately, at times, I look on with jealousy that I don't get the full spark of her divinity. But she's got plenty of love to go around, and the world is better when her love goes round. Her love makes the world go round. Without her, there would be no profound beauty that surrounds us. Even light itself and sound are clever whispers from her mouth. 
As I question whether she'll ever rise again, maybe I can learn to tuck her in, prepare the room to be splendid whenever it is she's ready to arise. Maybe I can help her eyes be overwhelmed with lush surprise at all the beauty that I've gathered while she slept. I wonder what she dreams of. It's so perfect. <laughs> it's, it's like this poem was just waiting for this exact moment to be in this conversation about the muse as lover. And I, re I really like, yeah, I like that frame. And I am, it's funny, my brain wanted to template, oh, what do you do to call her to you? Could I do that? Could I do the things you do to call her? Could I call her to me that way? My brain went there. And I am curious about those things. That also, I'm getting ready to publish a book of written works, and that is, is one of them. But yeah, I really like that framework of courting. And I'm open to the idea that I would like to improve my ability to to court that force. And maybe I don't know how to do that right now. Mm. You don't know how to do it right now versus previous times? It has felt very far away over the past couple of years. And I've told myself a story that as I've been, like I was holding on to this special for, for two, you know, it took like, many years to make and then hadn't released it. These short films, this book, there's so much that I haven't released into the world. I've told myself a story of like, why would the muse keep visiting stuff for me to like, me to just hoard my, hoard art. And I have been feeling more opening of more writing coming in as I've started to release. So that has held up a bit. Um, but that feeling of, oh my God, it's happening has not occurred for me in a while. And so I'm, eager for things I can do that will help it arrive. That's so interesting. I've had flows like that in my life and it's often been switching mediums. So I had a poetry period mm. and I had a period as a musician mm. and now I'm writing a book. And right now the muse has been quite present and then very recently not present and I know why she's not. I know exactly why she's not. Why isn't she? Because I have been too hedonistic in my behavior mm. and because I am indulging in personal dramas mm. and I'm not creating, as you said, she shows up for me when I show up for myself. I have been in summer indulgent mode and I feel her being taken less seriously. And, mm. you know, again, we're talking about anthropomorphizing this muse figure. I feel her not feeling respected by me. Mm. I completed a chapter recently that's the best thing I've written so far. Everything I've done on the chapter right now, it just feels like pulling teeth. I'm not there. It's just, I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. And I can look at the way my life is structured and the amount of travel and the amount of substances I'm using and just the amount, of, I'm not meditating. I'm not doing my morning journaling. All these things that I know, I know contribute. It's exactly as you say, there's like the personal structure. And then there's also just, you know, when is there something that wants to be born? And right now I feel like the book I'm writing wants to be born. It it wants to come out. Congrats. That's a really fun place to be. Thank you. It's so fun. I'm so grateful. And I need to remember my gratitude and have the self-discipline to build the crib for the baby. You mm -hmm. know, like I'm, I don't make the baby. I'm like building the crib and painting the walls with, you know, with little fluffy clouds. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's something actually I wanted to mention on the show, which is when I wrote poetry, I did it for a very different reason. I told you before we started that I was sent to a troubled teen boarding school. And the only thing that would soothe me was writing poetry. And the reason writing poetry soothed me is because I didn't have to think about what I was saying. What I thought about was the rhythm and the rhyme. And the rhythm and the rhyme would necessarily read me the story of my own emotions. Mm. I would sit down and write poetry and I would just think about the rhyming. Mm. And by the time I was done, my emotions had kind of refined into something that I could feel and release. 
and I could learn about by reading the poem back. So it was like medicine for me during that time in my life. Mm, beautiful. Have you f- experienced creativity in a similar way before? I've certainly been in awe of the ways that, of how healing it can be to just go through the process at all, at how much there can be surprise in the writing that ends up teaching me exactly what I needed in a moment. And, and I relate to what you're saying of like, it's almost like the message is revealing itself and then you take it in as its first customer, <laughs> like along with anyone else that you want to give it to. I sometimes say that God, love and creativity, I think are all the same thing and aligning to that force and take, following it wherever it wants me to go has been spectacularly beautiful for my life. And yeah, that into trusting that intuition, trusting that central force, regardless of outcome, regardless of, where, of what, whether it quote, goes my way or not. I just am so thankful for the number of choices and decisions and directions that has led me in that my brain would not have chosen and that now I can look back on and be like, wow, the richness and beauty of my life, thanks to following that force, is so much better than my mind could have imagined. And so art, love, God, muse, I trust you. I trust you fully. I trust you completely. And yeah, I am aiming to live my life in service of that direction and force in whatever directions it shows up. And I'm every so often writing apologies to it for the ways that I have failed in that. Is part of showing up for it patience when it does not arrive? It's hard to know, probably, right? (laughs) It's hard to know when what is being asked is patience and when what is being asked is a shift. Mm -hmm. I'm not the best at discerning when that which is which. It's also, it was really interesting for me hearing you describe, oh, this hedonism is, you have a story is, is not, serving the muse not drawing the muse to you right now and it reminds me of my own story about needing to release and what's interesting to me is that it feels true regardless of whether it's true it's like our belief in our felt sense of this is what's happening feels like it makes it true regardless of whether you know it's so weird to talk about objectively true in this space but it's like because it is in relationship with us always our own directionality and relationship to this is happening in my life and this might be what's in my way. Like that illumination itself is in some ways a gift from the, muse, from the muse helping align our lives towards more of that God, love, beauty, whatever it might be. That was a little bit mouth jumbled, but I think you know what I'm saying. Do you have support in the not knowing? And specifically what I'm thinking is mentorship or perhaps artistic peers that you could go to and say, hey, this poem will not land. It chooses not to land. What, would, what might you do? do you, have you been in this place and looked at a piece of art in this way? And have you made a choice that has been of service to you? Can we talk about that? Do you have people in your life who you have that kind of relationship to? Maybe also have you in the past as you were beginning to develop your craft as well. A couple of things come to mind. One is if the poem has already started coming through, then I think it's happening. There's nothing to ask for me. I would like to, anyway, I could maybe ask in Q or maybe a couple of other people who, Amber Ray is someone who feels like a creative peer to me and we have really good conversations about this stuff and maybe I'm not leveraging that as much as I could be. That might be useful. So what you're saying sounds really appealing and I don't think I'm taking, I don't think I'm doing that so much. Yeah. 
I'm aware that the major thing that I'm tracking in this conversation is the young artist. Okay. And I have this sense of a human, a young human, not necessarily in age, but in the relation to their craft, who is listening to this and just would love that juice, would love to just feel it flow through them. I was thinking about this idea of mentorship as a tool, because mentors have been huge in my life. Like I'm a big mentor guy. And I feel like what's beautiful about mentorship is that a mentor doesn't teach you. A mentor holds space for you to discover yourself uh, and then reflects back to you. That To me, that's the power of mentorship. And I think on, a, on the creative journey, the creative dance, creative stroll, whatever creative <laughs> thing we're doing, that mentorship is very helpful. And I feel you in this moment sharing that you are feeling, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but a sense of maybe stuckness. I wonder if some gray beard might, might walk across your path and say, oh, hey, let's have a little talk. So about Rick this. Rubin, if you're listening, I would absolutely <laughs> love. <laughs> he's, he's everybody's, he's he's everybody's, everybody's Gandalf. creative dad. Lin-Manuel, also happy to study at your feet. I would like that. And things are starting to open and shift for me. I also, I love what you said about a mentor, about it not being, follow this path, good, but like a mirror and a way of reflecting back and helping people look more deeply within themselves because I think that is what real mentorship is. And yeah, that's, I find myself both afraid of overly taking on, I can really be a sponge. I can really imitate others' styles very effectively and very quickly and very well. So I have this fear of absorbing someone that I get very close to in a way that might not feel good for them. There have been a couple of conversations in my life where I'll share a piece that seems beautiful and the person will feel like that that's me. Like you're that was me. Like I feel weird. Like it looks like you're doing me up there. And some of that is their own stuff and some of that is my own. Wait, am I adding my own lens, my own voice to this? And so some of that fear comes up and also, yeah, it'd be nice to, it'd be nice to have that gray beard dude um, who really is holding a mirror back to me. And also, as I say it out loud, some part of me is like, it's our own journey. Like we got to flounder <laughs> and figure it out ourselves. And I am very, you know, it'd be great to have that kind of help and support. And at the end of the day, we're excavating internally to figure out the ways to align to that force and so many people in my life, it's like there's such a quick, well, I need to learn this first before I can go out and do it. Or there's so much creative resistance, to use Stephen Pressfield's language, of these very brilliant, perfectly logical reasons why now is not the time for us to be stepping in or creating or whatever it might be. And I'm so skeptical of those lies to ourselves, <laughs> like fear disguised as reasons. And... I guess I'm, as I say it out loud, I'm cautious of creating my own and mentorship of giving my power over to someone else. Tell me what to do because it's too scary. It's too scary. I don't know. I don't know where to go. I'm not in control of it. So tell me. So please, you help me. But maybe that's a very limited view of what a mentor can be. And I don't know. It's all interesting. I'm enjoying your notes. Have you heard um, this wonderful quote from Ira Glass called The Gap? Mm -hmm. oh, the Gap is so good. What I find helpful for the listener who is afraid to start who has great taste. First of all, I'll put the Ira Glass quote in the show notes and, or you can look it up. It's, it's called good. The Gap. It's a wonderful quote. It's so generous. It's one of those quotes where you feel held by this 
man, Ira Glass, who's the host of This American Life, holding you in their own experience. He even the way he says it then, he's like, it took me longer than most. It takes a long time, it took me longer than most. Such a perfect quote. But this fear of starting, what's been helpful for me is there's a book called Design Your Life, Designing Your Life or Design Your Life. It came out of a class at Stanford where two professors were using design principles for building your life. And I think that the frame of design is actually great for creative process, which is it's not about getting it right, particularly when you're starting out. It's about iterating. It's about doing something Mm. and then observing and then iterating. And a podcast is great for iteration because you do it and it is what it is. And it must go in the world because you have taken your time to be here and unless we both decide it sucks, it goes in the world. And then I listen and I edit and I'm like, ah, this is how I made this choice. This is when I did this thing. This is what worked and what didn't. And then I do it again. So I think that the fear of starting, which is so common, we want to be so good and we're so awash in content everywhere that we're just, it's so easy to be like, I'm not Tim Rogan. Why should I podcast? You know, come on. Tim Rogan. <laughs> Tim Rogan. It's interesting. There's all, it's illuminating. There are two categories of it that I feel aware of. One is exactly what you're describing and the Ira Glass quote is exactly what I would send to that person. And then, I mean, with Veronica, I will say, she right now is creating things that are beautiful. She took, she loves, she's photographing people, relationships. And she took the best picture of my parents that I have ever seen. They have, that, the best picture of them that exists is because she captured it. And they've been alive a long time and around a lot of cameras. And it's very interesting to me. Also, another common thing I see is when people are creating things that are beautiful, and yet there is still this very deep fear of whether it's putting it out or trying again or taking further steps to it. And yeah, like I'm frankly, I'm very jealous of her right now in that she, there's like a structure, there's a thing. You could go out every day and do this thing and it would be in the category of the work that you do and something you do so well. And you could go out and do that every day. You could be practicing this thing that you are good at and love every day and it's within the category of the beauty. Wait, and are you saying that you can't? You're jealous so because I'm you can't? I'm saying when I feel like I just sit and write every day, it doesn't feel like that. And maybe it feels the same way to her. Maybe if she just goes out and maybe she has to feel inspired to capture the couple or the relationship and maybe it is the same in that way and fine. Veronica, okay, maybe it could be the same in that way for now that you're probably listening to this. But yeah, like when there is a structure or a clear path of steps that this is what I do, and then I'm like at least in the arena of creating, I, yeah, I envy that. And I recognize that I can sit and write every day. For a long time, that didn't feel like it. And so when I see, what, you're making this amazing thing and you could go out and you could do more of that tomorrow. As I say it out loud, maybe people look at me and they're like, just go write. You'll make another one of those poems tomorrow. It makes me want to shut up. <laughs> what about mm. the things that are close to what you are doing that you mm. could develop more facility with? So what I think is most obvious to me would be stand-up comedy. And I'm thinking about, oh, you just get up and do it. So, you know, there's an element of stand-up comedy to what you do. I mean, it's certainly, I mean, you stand up and you share and you speak and people laugh. I mean... You are a poet, and in this case, you are as close to a stand-up comic as I could imagine. Mm. What about developing these maybe tangential or parallel sort of like creative adventures? Perhaps there's that is an aspect of unsticking or an aspect of calling in the muse in a different way. And I am so inspired by stand-up comedy. I love stand-up comedy. And yeah, in trying to write it, I am feeling the gap. And that is not not a reason to stop. Yeah. This has been a very 
exploratory conversation for me. You know, I'm very grateful for that. There are interesting steps. It's also, it makes me reevaluate my relationship with time and how I'm working with creativity. This summer, I very much have openness to play and create, and I'm wanting to work on the next live show. And for a lot of the school year, I give presentations to teenagers about how social media is impacting their lives and relationship, and that is time intensive. I'm thinking like, yeah, if I were purely arting with my life, like, yeah, I should be in the club every night, just trying different comedy bits, failing. Oh God, enduring that, that would all be good fodder. I love stand-up comedy and I love laughter. This morning was just like writing about laughter and the beauty of laughter, laughing hysterically at some Tim Robinson sketch. Have you seen these things being passed around? But I was just crying laughing and then noticing how Laughing is also literally my body shaking, literally making sound, like in therapy-esque, like shaking, making sound, feeling such relief after this cosmic beauty of the process of laughter. And what a gift to be able to offer in the seriousness of life, just creating more laughter. I want to do more of that for sure. What about accountability? in the creative process. So you and I have just met in person, though we swim in the same waters and have been aware of each other. So I don't necessarily feel like we have the kind of relationship where there is a a kind of currency between us that I could hold you accountable. But when you say to me, if I were full-time arting, I would be in the club every night. Well, you are not full-time arting, but you don't need to be in the club every night. But you could be in the club more. You could... And it's terrifying. I mean, stand-up comedy is terrifying. terrifying. Um, what, is there an aspect of the creative journey where if you make a commitment to someone and you say, I'm going to be in the club once a week for the rest so of the summer? I'm in an accountability group every Friday with okay. my friend Adam. And we set goals every Friday. And then if he doesn't hit his, he has to put $200, drop $200 on the street. Can't give it to anybody. He has to drop it on the street. And I have to do 200 push-ups on our call, which takes me away from being present with him and is also very difficult. <laughs> Has uh, the, how long have you been doing this? For a couple of years. Not with Adam for a couple of years, but a year with Adam and a year before with other folks. You mentioned that it's been a couple of years that you've been feeling that the well is not as full as you wish it would be. Mm-hmm. Have you leveraged this technique of accountability in your relationship to your creative process? And well, so to that group, I would definitely like, all right, I'm going to come up with things. I'm going to do them. I'm going to try this. Will that spark it? And there's just a lot of failure in that process. A lot of things I was accountable to, things I did and showed up to the plate, showed up to work and did them. And it didn't really facilitate the thing we were talking about. And I've tried enough of those different avenues to feel like there's, you know, there's something else. I'm somewhere I'm not looking, something I'm not seeing in that. But that's that the structure has also been very helpful. And especially for the logistics of, doing creative work in the world, which is also not just the muse and lightning strikes. There's a lot to it. And so this accountability group has been very helpful in making sure, you know, we don't have real jobs. So this is like the closest thing to meeting my deadlines for my boss <laughs> that I have to really making sure that I'm hitting the marks and staying on track. So this group has been very helpful for me. If you could take a large language model and train it on your voice, uh-huh. such that it was able to produce you. Would you use that? Would you use it perhaps for inspiration? Is AI, as it is ineffectively titled, a potential tool for a creative person? Is it 
something that you should stay clear of altogether. What is your relationship to things like chat GDP and what their inevitable future expressions will be? Art is the official intelligence. I have been playing around, not really creatively. Any time I put write a poem in the style of Max Dostler or anywhere else about X, Y, or Z, it just feels... I don't know, cliche. And have, have you tra- have you trained it though? Have you uploaded my own words into it? Yeah, because I mean, I guess if you have enough material online, it, it can pull from that. But the way you would do it is you just say, I want to teach you my tone and style. And then you put like a ton of your content into it. And then you say, write about this in my tone and style. Right. I think there's enough of me that there's some idea. I haven't done that. Honestly, I've been like, I don't want to give it all of my stuff. Like I have some of that like... I'm not giving AI like all of my precious sacred art. Ugh, no, I have some resistance to that. Had some really good, interesting, and in rap battle form actually conversations with a couple of friends <laughs> about this recently. We were rapping about it back and forth to each other, and they made some very good points of like, what is real originality, and like, where does any of this come from, and wouldn't it be in some ways the ultimate legacy and of living on to have that exist in the AI sphere just feels gross right now. And I don't feel ready to do that. I feel very curious about what would come out. And I don't feel ready to give what to me, if we're talking in data standpoints, is the most precious data that like I, you know, that I hold with my art, these creations and works, which also when I have texted them to people don't feel like it. There's something in the performance, the delivery that feels far more like it. So then to condense it to these words, to say, here AI, here are my words. This is it, find more for my style. There's something that just hurts my stomach. And the cleanest answer is, I don't want to fuck that. <laughs> but... I, if you asked me again in a year, I wouldn't be surprised if I tried. It's interesting because your response is very visceral. Yeah. Using words like gross, having feelings in your body, I think fuck that. There is appears to be a not impartial animosity towards this new technology and perhaps a sense of a cheapening or a sense of... Uh, I've watched us over and over again digitize and take things that exist in the world and imitate them with technology and then pretend that they're the thing. Mm. And that does feel to me some of what we're doing with ChatGPT with this wave of AI. I have no reason to think that we're not going to do that again. And we already are doing that again. And I get very frustrated as we port textbooks over from paper to online. This is just the way we do it now and just assume that we haven't lost something. We're moving so fast and we are losing a lot. Technology is a trade. Sometimes it's hard to notice what the trade is. Um, Cherry Turkle has a beautiful example of this where talks about how if we wanted to know who's the actor in that thing, we can have the answer immediately. Like We can get the answer. What is lost is, wait, they were in that movie. Do you like that movie? Oh, yeah, in that. we've lost the process of figuring it out together. Tech is a trade. As we introduce things like ChatGPT, we are trading the process. And I don't think we respect what is lost in that trade. And I'm frustrated that as a society, we keep on plowing forward in that direction without honoring how much is lost as we move social life to social media and information search to AI. There's so much that is lost and it's hard to articulate exactly what is lost, but so much is lost. 
I have a thing that I love to do that relates to this, which is I love words and I like to use precise language. And I often use precise language around people who might not have the same vocabulary or the same relationship to language I do. And so I'm frequently asked what words mean. And I love to be asked what words mean. I don't think it's a, it's, you're not, it's like a, a weakness that you don't know the word. It's just a word that I know that you don't know. And so I can now teach you. And what I do every time is I attempt to define the word as it means to me, which often has to do with how it feels. Mm. And then I look up a formal definition and see how close I am. And there are times when my definition of the word, particularly in its feeling sense, to me seems much richer than the definition. I fully feel that. I just I officiated a wedding for the first time over oh, two weekends ago, and it was wonderful. My friends Aaron and Carson, and I was like looking up beloved, and you know, dearly beloved, as that was part of it. And I ended up writing a poem about beloved, and the dictionary definition. It's a past part disciple of beloved, and beloved is defined as be pleasing. <laughs> Which to me is, nope, <laughs> that ain't it. Beloved is not be pleasing. It is very far from it. And I had a whole visceral reaction to that as the idea, as I think many people are confused, that love and being pleasing or approved of or liked are the same thing. And I was very upset with the dictionary definition on that one. It's nice to com- combat Miriam Webster. Ugh, Miriam. Yeah. Who are some of your favorite poets? And are you inspired by particular poets in your creative journey? Are there people you've read where you feel that their purchase on language is something that you wanted to learn from and study? I love the way Rumi and Hafiz like ah, speak about... Ah. <laughs> Hafiz is my favorite, mm. just of all of them. I, just, I love the way they speak about what is beyond so beautifully, the way they use paradox and like just the simple complexity and beauty I really find wonderful. Um, Wayne Dyer is one, I don't know if he'd call himself a poet, but he has a poem that I recite all of the time and is one of my favorite things, which does something similar. Uh, but yeah, those are some names that that come up. Yeah, I'll share the Wayne Dyer pieces. In a mother's womb were two babies, and one turns to the other and says, do you believe in life after delivery? He replies, why, of course, there has to be something after delivery. Maybe we're here to prepare ourselves for what will be later. Nonsense, says the first. There's no life after delivery. What kind of life would that be? I don't know, said the second, but there'll be more light than here. Maybe we'll walk with our legs and eat with our mouths. Maybe we'll have other senses that we don't understand now. And the first replies, that is ridiculous. Walking is impossible and eating with our mouths is absurd. The umbilical cord is what supplies nutrition but the umbilical cord is too short. Life after delivery is to be logically excluded. And the second says, I think there's something. Maybe it's just different than it is here. Maybe we won't need that physical cord anymore. And the first goes, nonsense. And moreover, if there were life after delivery, tell me, why has no one ever come back from there? Delivery is the end of life, and in the after delivery is nothing but darkness and silence and oblivion. It takes us nowhere. And the second says, but certainly we'll meet mother. And she will take care of us. The first goes, Mother, you actually believe in mother? If mother exists, where is she now? And the second goes, She's all around us. We are of her. It is in her that we live. Without her, this world would not and could not exist. 
First goes, I don't see her. It's only logical. She does not exist. And the second says, sometimes if you're in silence and you really listen, you can perceive her presence. You can hear her loving voice calling down from the above. And that is just one of my favorite things. And that's Wayne Dyer. And it's also not exactly clear if it's Wayne Dyer or like Henri Nusseau. It's just like a tough to attribute, but I love that so much. So that is probably my favorite poem at this moment. I love that you have it committed to memory. Oh, yeah. My favorite poem, Hafiz, quite a short one, but it comes up a lot in my life, which is, don't surrender your loneliness so quick. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something is missing in my heart tonight. As my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need for God absolute. Hmm. I like that a lot. We're so quick to run from the discomfort. I find poetry to be uniquely soothing. There's something about the pregnancy of such a short constellation of words that lends a certain kind of romantic authority. And I don't mean romantic in terms of romance, but a sort of like the romance of life. Mm -hmm. That there's a kind of there's some there's a sense of authority to me in so much richness being delivered in this sort of this small package where each word is absolutely important. So like that Hafiz poem, I memorized it incorrectly. Mm. I forgot ferment when I was originally, when I remember, let it, let it season you as few human and divine ingredients can. And then returning, and obviously it's, it's translation from... It's you know, let it ferment and not season? It, no, it's let it ferment and season. Got it. But I had neglected to remember ferment. And when I read it after I'd been saying it, I realized how much had been taken hmm. by the lack of inclusion of that particular word in what the poem is telling you to do is to let it ferment in you. Mm. Let it compost and alchemize and change. And, but there's, fermentation is kind of a bit of a yucky process in certain ways that yields, you know, yields a thing that is desired, but the process itself is off-gassing and sort of all, it's like murky and mucky in a way. Mm. And simply seasoning is just too clean and too easy. And the ferment was so necessary for me for this whole poem. Is it let it season in you or ferment and season in you or let it ferment and season you? Let, let it ferment and season you as few human so or divine ingredients can. So it's an ingredient, the loneliness ingredient ferments you. Ferments you. Yeah. The loneliness is not fermenting in you. The loneliness is you fermenting are, you. You are being fermented. Which is its own sort by of like the, even yeah. more. As like if the loneliness over. is a, maybe a kind of enzyme yeah. or some sort of like biological agent that is creating a process in you that was waiting to happen that needed powerful this thing. And it's not just the loneliness. It's the length of the loneliness that is necessary. That to me is what's so pretty about this poem is mm -hmm. it's don't surrender your loneliness so quick. You can escape now, but if you wait, if you stay with it, there is a process that will come. And I wonder if maybe that might be what's going on for you. It certainly is in part. And it's beautiful to see some light on the other side and beautiful to ferment either way. Um, no matter the direction it takes me, I, am, I have never been and don't anticipate ever being regretful for following that voice of love, truth, intuition, God, art, whatever it may be. And... If it's time for it to 
ferment me, so be it. Earlier on in the conversation, you offered a theory that the muse was not giving you more material because you had been hoarding it and not releasing it to the world. Now, let's talk about the releasing of it into the world. And by doing so, let us direct our listeners to where they can understand you more deeply. Yes, I would love, as I'm thinking about like, how do I get the art out to the world? What I care about is that people watch the full poems. And so there's a special of nine poems at wordsthatmove.com slash special, wordsthatmove.com slash special. And there are also short films of individual poems on there as well as some on my YouTube. Uh, my name is Max Stossel, S-T-O-S-S-E-L, wordsthatmove.com, Max Stossel. If you search any of those things, you will find them. And what I really want are for people to watch, yeah, that special, which is an hour long. Next time you're going to watch Netflix, pull that up instead. And yeah, to take in like the full poems. And I am also getting ready to release a book of like six years of some written stuff, all different from spoken pieces, It's which is very different, very vulnerable for me. I know when I get on stage, when I perform, people are going to like it. I just have enough reps that, that that is what happens. And I trust in my feeding something that way that is beautiful and leaves people feeling more spiritually fed and alive. And with this written form, I have no idea what that's going to be like to release. And so, But that also feels like the closing of a chapter. And I'm very excited to close that chapter. And hopefully so that the new one will open more fully and blossomy. But yeah, wordsthatmove.com, Max Stossel. And I hope you enjoyed this. This was a fun one for me. Here is where I would love to land because I think it is apropos to the types of people who listen to my show. We've talked a lot about how poetry can give you a deeper understanding of certain things. A lot of this conversation has been about the writing of poetry. I really liked your ego death piece and I think it's relevant to this particular audience. I like the idea of the relationship between the new me and the old me across the threshold of psychedelics. You talked about flying a kite in the desert. Is this Burning Man? This was not. This was on LSD in the desert in Morocco. <laughs> wow. This was like 2015. I was on a bed and flying a kite in the desert in Morocco for like eight hours. I say four hours because it fit better in the poem, but it was like eight hours. <laughs> the sun set, and I was just pulling it bit by bit in. Oh, God, that was a spectacular experience. The name of the poem? Death of a Former Self. And yeah, I just released a, a YouTube video of that one, Death of a Former Self, which you'll find in videos on the website or on my YouTube. Yeah, and all of this will be in the show notes, of course. This, so was this experience of flying the kite on the bed in Morocco, do you consider this to be an ego death? Or was this yes. talking generally about the, the ego beginning death quality? Of one. Okay, so it began in this experience and I imagine carried forth in other experiences? Yeah, I have since had some like just full on during the psychedelic trip is when the ego death happens. But that the first few times I would say I did psychedelics, I would say was a slower burn off of 23 years of self that had formed before it. Uh, that was, that piece in some ways is, you know, it's from many years ago now. The old me were passionately being like, hey, how much are we doing this? How many of these substances are we taking? Like, how often are we doing this? In some ways, are we integrating? What are we doing? You're trusting your own inner voice over the millions of years of human history and societal structures and norms. Like, who the fuck are you? And who do you think you are, Max? And in many ways, I was very afraid that my skeptical side, that my discerning side 
would just die. And in some way, it was certainly losing the reins. It was losing the driver's seat. And in retrospect, I'm very grateful that it did. But there was a lot of resistance towards that side getting out of control. And you know, now on this side, I don't think that side is gone, but it doesn't drive my life the way that it used to. And I'm grateful for that. But that was like a slow ego death of that version of self. I'm going to give a little kind of nudge to the listener that this is about a four or five minute video. And as I said, I think for this audience, it's a nice way of starting with your work because it's so relatable for psychedelic users. Mm. And I just, I love this conversation between the former self and the self after the experience. So I just want to nudge the listener. That's a, I think that's a really nice place to start with the work that you're doing. And I guess just as a kind of final thing on psychedelics, what do you feel is your relationship to with psychedelics and the creative process? Do you write while you're on psychedelics? Do you feel inspiration from psychedelics that then lead to writing? Inspiration lead to writing for sure. I have never, also I like to write the rhythm of the phone notepad is nice for me. That's where I started and I like that. And looking at the phone screen while on psychedelics is just like a ridiculous thing that just does not work for me. And I'm like, what is this? I am putting this down. But I, and I haven't tried microdosing. I'm very open to that and seeing how that would influence creativity but for the most part now it's have the experience and write about it later often like those experiences are so profound and intense they feel so beyond words that doesn't feel like I'm going to be able to describe them or really do them justice uh, yeah, words feel small in that space uh, Michael Pollan has a lovely article about r- trying to write about the ineffable um, and trying to write about that specifically psychedelic experience in the context of his book How to Change Your Mind for me where my access point is that a festival or a psychedelic experience is a setting, not a subject, and that you can write about, much as you have done, you can write about the human experience in the context of these ineffable spaces in a way where the texture of them can come alive, both in its necessary relationship to the subject you're writing about, which is in many cases your own transformation or romance or whatever. But also the gaps can be filled in by the reader or listener where you know the finger that points to the moon is not the moon, but if you've seen the moon and you see the finger, then you can, get a, you can do a little bit of the legwork yourself in your own psyche. And so it's interesting that there are not words for the ineffable definitionally, and that's why that word's so lovely because it's a word for the place where there are no words. And yet, I love words, and I want to see how far they can go. And it takes me to a nice place of, for my friend Alice Frank, who's also a poet, when I first met her, I was like, what do you love about poetry? And she said, poetry is a way of effing the ineffable, of saying the unsayable. Effing the ineffable. Effing the ineffable is really a... <laughs> is that an original of hers? I think it is. Oh, that's nice. That's, isn't that nice? She's so good I want to steal it. I, I want to name this podcast Maybe I'll introduce that. you because she's, a, she's can, a fun one. Maybe she'll let us have it as our title for this podcast. So mm-hmm. a title is so important. It certainly is the first impression. And this is our last impression. Well, it's been fun. Max, thank you so much for showing up here and joining us on Life is a Festival and sharing so much juice about creativity because I agree with you that love, God, creativity, it is the tapping into what makes life worth living. I really enjoyed it too. And thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, friends. See you next time. (laughs) 
Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival, and I'll see you on the dance floor.